0: It's uh, Roxanne Hodge. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Today, I have an amazing uh, woman that I spent some time with in Rome at uh, the Wynn Conference. And she was on the main stage uh, talking about female leadership. Uh, Her name is Wendelin Vandalis. Wendelin, thanks so much
1: for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to uh, see and hear you again. (laughs) So Wendelin
0: caught my attention because... As you know, I talk a lot about uh, female leadership and diversity um, and inclusion in the workplace, but she talked, she's a historian and a female leadership expert based in the Netherlands. And what captivated me when she spoke was, you know, the, the history about um, not just female leadership, but really as societies, what we're looking for in reference to the definition of happiness and what, what makes us as a society um, what are all the basic things we always talk about, and uh, that's why I thought we, I would love the opportunity for, for uh, Wendelin to come in and talk today with all of uh, my my uh, amazing amazing listeners. Mm. So, tell me a little bit about what what wants what got you interested in in studying history?
1: Ah, that's a great place to start. Yeah, um, what actually got me into history when I was 12 and I told this when we were in Rome I said this I said this in my lecture as well when I was 12 I heard the story told on tv on tv that in our lifetimes we all inhale a molecule of everyone who has ever lived on planet earth before and I thought that was mesmerizing and I thought of all the great men that had had gone before and I thought of Tutankhamun and I thought of Martin Luther King and I don't know exactly why at 12 years old but these two men stood out to me Um, and I do understand why certainly because I just had learned about Martin Luther King and he was yeah he I was mesmerized and over the years history was a fascination to me But over the years, I also started to realize that although I loved history and it was what drove me to studying history, um, that very quickly into my first year, I realized there is actually almost no focus on women's issues or women's history, or actually to think of it as women's history, that it's such a strange division that we have sort of what we call history is almost only a male perspective. So although what drove me into studying history was sincere intrigue and interest, um, what drove me to the topic of female history, and I have to say in the beginning, not even only female history, but minority history in general, what drove me there was that I thought this is just not possible. We're living in the two thousands, and we are still viewing history from a really, really male perspective. Um, and that is because, in my case, as an I'm an historian, but I'm also an ancient historian, and my research. Um, and my work at the University of Utrecht has always been for the chair of ancient history. I'm mainly a Roman historian, historian although I also have my titles in mainstream contemporary history, um, which is on for a topic like leadership, a perfect combination, I have to say. Um, but what really, really drove me to studying the Roman women and leadership in the Roman period was because these sources were in back then and throughout history actually made by men, written by men for a male audience mostly because of all the limitations socially and um, legally for women. Um, but it has also been transmitted throughout the centuries by men and, it has been studied by men. So, of course, it's really logical that the, our perspective on the place of women in history, certainly that long ago, um, was really male dominated. And I just love the exhilarating perspective of sort of hopping on this new wave of researchers that was starting to emerge in the beginning of the 2000s um, to study female um history and certainly in the in the roman era i thought it was amazing when i started to learn a little bit more about the roles and societal um roles women could have in the roman era 2000 years ago i was really really flabbergasted i have to say and that was when i scratched the surface um that was what drove me into studying um, women and, uh, yeah, actually also led me into doing the research that I did, um, which was focused on the visual representation of women in the public spaces of Roman cities, which was, of course, which were the most honorable places to be visually present. so yeah, that's
0: to prior to so two thousands. What you're saying is that the history of Roman times did not really focus on female, uh, the female leaders that were there, and in mm-hmm. the two thousands there was more of a focus on the female leaders and putting up their statues in significant places throughout Rome. Is that is that what I heard you say?
1: Yeah. What. What happens is when we when we look at how women's studies ha, have been developing women's studies, so not only the historical perspective, um, is that from around 1975, we see researchers emerging who are studying women, but mostly in literature. And it, it is not until the 2000s that within academics, we started to realize that literature is just not the place to look for these women to get a well-rounded view on them because mostly they were um, not portrayed in ancient literature because of the fact that in ancient times it were mostly men who were writing and the few women that were writing were just not copied throughout the centuries because we still have that literature because of the monks in in, in Christian uh, monasteries who were copying these ancient texts. And they, of course, within Christianity, um, it was not um, seen as really honorable for women to have that Mm -hmm. sort of stage. So a lot of the women in literature were actually excluded uh, from the sources uh, throughout the centuries, so what is what has been transmitted has been really edited. On the other hand, what started to happen in the early 2000s within the historical field and research was that archaeology became much more important to study minority histories. Um, And and for example, my research focused on statues of women and inscriptions of women, um, buildings, the buildings that women built within Mm. their societies. And these are sources that are still there. They have not been edited like texts could be edited throughout the centuries. So, so, was the, the excavation of some of these
0: statues or did they always exist, but the text yes. to substantiate who they were and what they did, that, that was lost in the translation into Christianity from, um, olden times
1: no it was even more you have when you look at the sources that we have from the roman era you have on the one hand the literary sources um so stuff that roman authors wrote but also for instance um the law those are really literary sources we we have them as books nowadays (laughs) nowadays um and on the other hand you have the archaeological sources and the, the literary sources have have been transmitted over the centuries via these monks in, 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 in monasteries because that they were not, we don't have the originals because it was really um, um, uh, the material on which was written, was not sustainable enough to sort of um, yeah, survive all these centuries. So they were copied all these texts. But what you can imagine is that on the other hand, these statues and these buildings, they were just there. They were simply there. Um, they were only not being studied um, by by the historians until like 30 years ago or 25 years ago. So that's why we see there's, it's a little bit more objective as a resource to study. Uh, And that's why I also, as an historian, it was a bit odd not to focus on texts because it's what we do normally, but to focus on the material sources that we have. Amazing
0: Um, that that had been,
1: you know, it's funny, right? Like you said,
0: uh, with how much religion has paid, uh, you know, space in history yeah. And, you know, when you go back to archaeological uh, sources, like, you know, when I was in university and studied archaeology, the, the facts, they, the, the ruins and, yeah. you know, the bones that were, you know, like the reality is they're, they're, it's being excavated um, and has a voice.
1: Yeah. Right. Yes. And And then yeah. what
0: does this actual art, these artifacts actually teach us? Now, you spoke about yeah. some amazing women I want you to maybe I know yeah. you probably can't talk about all of them and um, but if you can kind of tell me about some of these women and what you, you told amazing stories about them and what people need to know about some of these um, I'm gonna say they've been teachers and leaders for for like you said 2,000 years but we haven't known about them
1: no who would, that's you, who would
0: you share with us and, and I know it's probably hard to pick
1: I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I have to say, um, you you sort of make it easy on me because there are for me two favorites, because one, I, I published my book, book on the first one. And, and uh, the other one is, is um, also a woman who I've studied and talked about in depth. Um, so first of all, I think it's really interesting to mention just to... Uh, to um, illustrate what kind of impact women could have, I think it's uh, nice to start in Pompeii because a lot of we sort of everyone, although you might not know anything about Roman history, Pompeii is a place a lot of people have heard about. And we can say that, let's say until 30 years ago, we thought women had no place in society from sort of a powerful leadership perspective. And um, in Pompeii, there is a woman called Aymachia. And Aymachia was the first Roman woman I really studied in depth. And she was always referred to in the um scientific literature as yes she was a really important woman in pompeii and she built the biggest building on the forum dot that was it nothing else um which was sort of intriguing because (laughs) why stop there but for some reason that's exactly an illustration also of what has happened in uh in academia so i took up this case of Eumachia. And what turned out is that Eumachia was a woman in Pompeii who lived around, um, she was probably born around 40 BC. So um, about 2000 years ago. And within the Pompeian society, Pompeian society was about 20,000 people uh, uh, large. And there were, you had the city senate and they were ruling um, the city. And there were some people in every sort of generation um, who were sort of the main main characters who determined sort of the course of uh, the societal um, dealings with Rome, but also... How pros- prosperous Pompeii was, and that 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 uh, was something that was not just only how Pompeii um, how it went for Pompeii, but how Roman cities outside of Rome um, were managed. It was really important to have sort of a couple of characters in town who were like the the super mayors mayors of their town, and one of these people around uh, 40 BC up till let's say, uh, 10 AD, was this woman called Ermakia. And she not only um, had a vast fortune, she also ran a couple of major businesses in Pompeii. Um, her father had died, her husband had died, and within both families, there were large uh, businesses, an oil factory, uh, uh, a wool-producing um, uh, business. She There was uh, actually a brick factory also, and she led all these businesses. So she was a powerful businesswoman. And it wasn't the norm that women could run these businesses. But because of the, situ- the situation that her dad and her husband uh, both had died, it was just there was no one else to take up that leading position. And it was possible for women to take up that position. And she did that. So she had her own money and a lot of it. She ran her businesses. Within these businesses, there were a lot of families who were dependent on it, on her and on those businesses. So she had an extensive network and clientele system that she was heading. So she was a big, big figure in Pompeii. Mm. And what happened um, was that she was, um, that the city senate awarded her the right to build in the Forum of Pompeii. And of course, the Forum was sort of the, um, not only the political center of a town, but also, also the social and legal and religious center of a town. And there she built not just a building, but she built the biggest building on the whole forum and she made it a public building. So it was not um, exclusively for her and her network. It was a public building and it was a large public garden with the most beautiful uh, ambulatory walks around it with art and beautiful gardens to look at. Um, And in it was a statue of herself donated to her um, by, the, by uh, uh, association in Pompeii of um, the wool producing uh, manufacturers who were honoring her for her role in Pompeii. So when you entered Pompeii from sea, um, you entered the forum and the first thing that you would see was not the most important temple on the forum, for instance, the the, the temple for Jupiter um, or um, the political buildings. No, the first thing that you saw was an incredibly big inscription naming uh, Machia and seeing her building. And when the doors were open during the day, you would see straight ahead her statue and her portrait statue in that space. So it was she was, in the most literal sense, center stage in Pompeii, in a society that actually limited women legally and socially. But you see right away how the what kind of the di- dichotomy we have between ideal versus practice, the law is sort of the ideal that's there in a society, but it doesn't say a thing about the practice <laughs> and about what a society needs. And Eumachia is really a beautiful example of that. Pompeii. So it's, it's so fascinating,
0: right? Like when you when you go back that long, and it, like you said, it's the explicit conditions that existed at that time and the implicit uh-huh. ones. Clearly, women, women like Eumachia were... Demonstrating capacity, we're able to lead. Yes. We're able to to you know run massive businesses, um, multiple, no doubt, yes. and be able to in that time with women not having the rights, um, still be able to manage in, a, yeah. in in a you know at a time when women generally would not have had much of a voice um, no. politically or legally.
1: Yes, absolutely, and that's the thing because. Oftentimes, as researchers, we stop there. And I know you are uh, a psychologist. When you take a moment to re- realize what it would have meant psychologically as a human being who is limited, and she knows she's limited legally and 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 socially, but for her to build that building in the forum, she was needed on site as well for inspections. She was needed to. Um, to manage all the dealings with the Senate who had granted her the privilege of being able to build in the center. For that, you need to communicate with the highest political organ there is. So when we say women had no power, you can ask yourself, what is power? And I think the most literal definition is that you have influence on what is happening around you. And she might not have had political power in the sense that she was able to fulfill a political position but i don't think it really limited her because she she did everything that a senator could have done and that's the really interesting thing i think we can take away from that it was not nothing and it was not um Oftentimes it is said, yeah, women like amakya could be like that because they were really rich and because they inherited the sort of male lineage fortunes within the family. But the same goes for the men who inherited their, the fortunes um, that were in their families. And on the other hand, it takes a real character to have excuse my French, but to have the balls to (laughs) deal with a city senate and to do something just a little bit different than people were used to. And she did that. And although we don't have any literary sources on her um, to sort of pinpoint her character, I do think we get a glimpse of her um, in the sense that um, there was another woman in Pompeii who built a temple right next to her. And that's amazing as well. That must have been a really important woman as well. But to build a temple is, is a little bit more safe. It is, yeah, sort of falling into the norm of what you did as a Roman benefactor. And the women, that woman was called Mamia. A lot of these civic benefactors were honored by the city senate with a public funeral and a public tomb. And there was one um, specific uh, burial street where you find these tombs of all these men who and women who were awarded these honorary tombs and honorary, honorary um, um, they were called funus publicum in Latin. So a public f- uh, funeral. And Jermakia wasn't buried there, but she was buried in another burial street And there she built, with her own fortune, and she she states that really clearly in an inscription, she built there again, the biggest tomb imaginable, outshining all the tombs that were in eight burial streets in Pompeii. She built the most lavish, extravagant, gigantic tomb possible with on the third tier, it was about 10 meters tall, on the third tier, she was on, in a seated statue on top of it. So again, she was like s- saying, here I am. This is my family name because she was of course representing her family. This is who I am and, and don't you dare forget me <laughs> because that was quite- clearly she
0: was, uh, she was speaking uh, through the times to let people yes. know uh, the presence and the strength and um, I'm gonna say the voice that she yeah. could put forward even though there were other like you said limitations in that time she she did yes. a- amazing things yes. now with these yeah with these times and what you've been studying that's this is what i'm i'm fascinated about especially when we talk about you know here in north america we talk a lot about parody and you know um, transformational leadership and stuff like yeah. that which we're obviously clearly yeah. showing that this has existed for centuries yes Um, that this has been but through different political and religious ramifications and like you said literature got um passed down based on the powers that were be and then there's so many things that we're learning now uh, since the 2000s when you think about female leadership and think about um what we're trying to achieve today Mm -hmm. what what kind of things would you say as a historian and someone that works with female leadership that companies or leaders of today really need to think about when uh, they're thinking about uh, women and and leadership?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, one of the most important uh, things to start with is again to emphasize that these issues aren't new to think about. We have a legacy of of actually thought leaders thinking about issues like this. So we don't need to invent the wheel all over again. And although we, of course, we want to um, adapt solutions to the times of the here and now and our current issues, but it is really comforting to know that our current issues aren't really, really unique. In the sense of sustainable leadership and issues with ethnicity and diversity and stuff like that, it's been a topic of discussion and thought for thousands of years. Um, And that's, I think, it supports us and it's sort of, it creates a, a starting point in which we can sort of relax a little bit. We don't need to think this is a whole new. Thing no, it's 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 in our DNA to want to try to um, cooperate and uh, lead from a bigger perspective. Um, and the thing that I, uh, the second step that that I often um, take is to make people and businesses aware that. Um, what we call thought leaders today were the were what philosophers were 2000 years ago philosophy wasn't sort of an elite individual exercise you did in your own study like we think of philosophers nowadays sort of a, a sol- solitary really uh, intellectual endeavor. Now philosophy was was the sharing of wisdom with one another in thinking about, themes as success and, and happiness and uh, for it for example the Stoics, I've been studying also for 25 years, um, were really adamant that to be successful as a society or, or individually you needed to be in a happy place and happiness was the sharing of what was good for the bigger for the bigger good so not on an individual level they thought happiness couldn't exist if it existed only for the individual so that's also really really important to realize as sort of a second step it is that to think about and have a broader perspective on leadership and and what is success what is happiness i think that's all related um it's really important to know that that has been thought about also for 2000 years ago. And I think it's really interesting. I have here uh, one of my favorite Stoics um, who I've been rereading again since Rome. And I think is um, really interesting to know, this is an excerpt of a text from 2000 years ago. And it was a Stoic philosopher, uh, Musonius Rufus, and he said about women, and, and then I go into what um, your question more in detail about the, wi- the female issue, but I think this is really apt to start with. He says, someone might say that courage is an appropriate characteristic for men only, but this is not so. It is also necessary for women to be courageous and free from cowardice so that she is overcome neither by pain nor by fear. And Stoics Mm -hmm. thought that pain and fear were the one things or the two things that kept you from really fulfilling your purpose and being happy and therefore successful. And they say, so if women lack courage, it is from lack of practice rather than from courage not being an innate quality. And I think that's 2,000 years old, That. Really is the bottom line for me in female leadership nowadays. We that's need- the bu-
0: That's the bullseye, right? Like really, yes. technically,
1: because yeah.
0: it's it's for a lack of practice. It's not. It's yes. not if you keep women or have kept women uh, through the ages in those in those spaces based on the the political or cultural context of that time. Yeah, you yes. know, they haven't had the opportunities to be able to practice, and clearly, what we're seeing today yes. that women have amazing transformational um, qualities that benefits um, so many things within companies.
1: Yes, yes. And I think for women, we need two things to um, to m- underpin this, what Masonius Rufus says, to make this a reality, we need to practice our courage as women, but we need men and women around us mm-hmm. to give us the space to practice that courage. And we are responsible whether um, we we take that space that is given to us, like Amakya, there was just a little bit of space for her, but she ran with it and uh, <laughs> she took it and she ran with it. Yeah. Um, and so it's up to us how to um, create, how we make use of the space that is given to us, but realize that courage is not something we, we have in spades without any practice. We need to practice that courage to bring to the table our type of leadership. Because I think, and I wrote about this as well last week, I think for women, a lot of the times, leadership is not so much leadership over, but leadership with and that doesn't mean we enter sort of uh, systems without hierarchy. It doesn't mean soft leadership, but I think leadership with others um, is really a different definition of leadership and power than leadership over. And it that coincides with the three topics that, that sort of arose or sort of learnings that I use in business lectures and workshops that arose from my research The the second sort of key learning I always um, communicate is that these women, 2,000 years ago, if we can learn anything from them, it's that they really were very daring and skilled communicators in their representation of what they were and what they did in society. They did not shun away from expressing their roles in society. So yes, they put up statues with inscriptions naming what they did and what they had achieved. And that is something that I think we as women, we are sort of socially not, it's not a social ideal for us as women to really portray our strengths and communicate our accomplishments. But on the other hand, Also in this case, we don't have the practice oftentimes in how to do that aligned to our characters because it doesn't mean you have to be, um, I think we have a lot of examples of how to communicate our accomplishments and roles from men, but for a lot of women, it just doesn't feel aligned with ourselves to express it like that. So we have to find our true expression of that but I do think we have, to, we have to express and communicate our accomplishments and our roles also to inspire others to be daring and to be courageous to bring our hearts and leadership to the table. This was such a great interview that we decided
0: to turn it into a two-part series. Be sure to tune in next week for part two so you don't miss out on the amazing content.